and welcome to Molly Movie Club. I'm Anna Rutberg. And I am Casey Muratori. It sounded like weirdly like a computer voice. Were you trying to make it sound like a computer voice? I wasn't trying to make it sound like a computer voice, but I decided to move the accent around this time because it's just oh. getting a little bit it was just getting a little bit pat. Okay. And All I right. wanted to make sure it would be fresh. I like that. I like that. Do you understand what I'm saying? I understand what you're saying. All right. So our movie this week is Home Alone, directed by Christopher Columbus, you yes. know, which is pretty impressive, you know. <laughs> such a, he had such a good run. I know, you know. Right. It's they, amazing that at, at his age, he's, he was still making movies in the 90s. You convincing know? Spain to explore America. Right. And then after that, about a 400-year hiatus or That's whatever. Right. And then he made this Actually, movie. Is he, he's normally credited as Chris Columbus, I think. And I'm, I'm to won- avoid this problem. I'm wondering if it's to avoid this problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, and it's a it's a script written by uh, John Hughes. John right? Hughes. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. I would say the script is actually really good. I, I mean this this movie is definitely one of those ones that I now reference canonically. I think I've referenced it yeah. on this podcast because it's actually shocking to me how good the script is given what you would expect. So given today's expectations if you were to release this movie like Home Alone mm-hmm. today you would have an absolute nonsense script. It it would just be there would be nothing in that screenplay other than like stupid things about cartoon things happening to the two villains. That that's right. it. Right. That's the only thing. Which I'm pretty script. sure probably what the sequels because we were looking on uh, yeah. on Disney Plus. There's like five sequels or yeah, something, and yeah. I'm assuming those are it. Just becomes that. I don't know. I haven't seen them, but my assumption is it it they probably focus a lot more on the um sort of the goofy pranks kind of stuff I, I don't know about the sequels because obviously i haven't seen them i think there are four there's five total well, there's movies. one there's one but that is macaulay culkin like home alone, home alone 2. 2 is actually macaulay culkin the rest are just like completely just you're trading on the brand name i don't even think they're like reboots like the modern batman style where we're like officially restarting the series i think no, they're it's like just, a totally different they're kid. just like i don't know here's some <laughs> here's some yeah. new actors and whatever but anyway the the point is simply that it's definitely a movie which massively over delivers on screenplay for what anyone would expect to get (laughs) going into a movie like this i don't think it's necessarily a great screenplay at all it's just decent it's solid it's solid it works because i mean throughout the movie there's so many like there's so many implausible things that happen in the movie but the the screenplay kind of does the work to make them pass as plausible. Well, I'd also just say it's a little bit separate for, from that for me, which is just that I was impressed with the level of care that seemed to have been taken in writing the screenplay because nobody is coming to see the movie for that. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and I think that's the main difference. It feels like that's the main difference between that stretch in the you know from like 1975 to 1995 or whatever you want to call it and now is that there it seems like there was not as much of an emphasis on a product as a whole as there is now like nowadays i feel like if if you never had home alone and you made home alone today 
it would be sort of a productized Home Alone. It would be like, okay, this is about these cartoon things, and that's just what we put on the screen, right? Like in Avengers, that sort of thing, whatever. It's like that's just we're just putting superhero punching around stuff on the screen. That's it. And we don't really care what's in the screenplay because that's not like what this product is, right? And Home Alone is just really strange in that it's it actually cared about the story in the movie that's not that strange when you go back and look at all the movies of that era because that is yeah. kind of how they worked is that people still cared about about the writing yeah. but when you go back today it just feels very weird and that's why I always reference it on movie club when we're talking about screenplay stuff that's good I'm always like it does seem like that era just had better stuff yeah. and it and I guess when people wrote screenplays back then they felt like it was more important or they were written by more talented people or the process was such that the, I don't know exactly what it has changed uh, in Hollywood but for whatever reason you get movies like this where I don't think anybody would have expected there to be a good, solid screenplay behind a movie like this where it made today. But back then, it that's what it got. I mean, I guess I don't know what the origin of this, uh, if it's an idea that John Hughes had. But I feel like it's it's actually a pretty creative idea for yeah. a story. I, I should say also that, like, I grew up watching this movie around Christmas time. Like, it's it's. I've seen it so many times that it's, like, a little bit hard for me to, like, probably step back and be like, is this good or not? Because I've seen it a lot. And I, well, I'm not like, oh, my God, it's a mind-blowingly good movie. I do enjoy it. Um, and I, but it's funny, when you, when you think back on this movie, especially your memory of watching it as a kid, you remember the last, like, 20 minutes, right? You remember the, the pranks and the... The I guess what the pranks isn't the right word the booby traps yeah um, the, the sort of Looney Tunes esque yeah. stuff that they're doing which it goes is like, like full cartoony like cartoon, yeah. um but that's a, such a short little part of it's the movie it's not much and all the build up to that is really nice like they're doing a lot of really nice stuff in there I agree with the characters and it really works well it's actually like has it has things that it's trying to say it's not just about that sort of wacky cartoony thing at the end that's just kind of in there for a fun little like climax right um yeah i guess what i would say is unlike a movie like star wars prequel sequels sequel trilogy whatever they call those movies mm-hmm. where someone is trying to tell me that it's about family mm-hmm. This movie's actually about family. Yes. It is an actual movie that is about family. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that it does a pretty great job, actually, yeah. of taking a movie that could have been extremely uninteresting thematically and emotionally, and it could have just been like a silly slapstick thing, yep. and turning it into something where you actually are pretty invested in the story. I think the biggest way that they do this that's surprising um, because it's, like you said, creative is a good word for it. Yeah. Because they're figuring out ways to get emotional, like, content into a movie that feels like it shouldn't have it. It's it's kind of this n- weird, th- which which makes it feel, like, this is why I said, like, it's less producty. It feels more artistic, almost like it feels, someone it, cared. It, it feels, right? like, very creative to me. There's a lot of ideas in it. Yeah. And so where a lot of this comes from is this really creative idea that there's this guy in the neighborhood who is like this reclusive old dude who's kind of weird. And so – And the way that the kids – 
the kids. scene the scene where like the, they look yes. out the window at him is such a thing that kids do mm-hmm. right it feels so true it's like oh that old man and the, the older brother's kind of trying to scare the younger kids and it's like it's so true to kids it's perfect and they you know that's the kind of thing where again it could have been really simple that that just happens at the beginning and then he saves the kids at the end and that's not very interesting but instead they sort of create these opportunities for Kevin McAllister, the the young kid, Macaulay Culkin, Mm -hmm. to interact with the old man multiple times, Mm -hmm. uh, leading up to like sort of the culmination where they're actually in church together at kind of like a low point for both of them. And they have this discussion about like, you know, fear and what that means to them and what it's preventing them from doing. And family. And and it's really great. And it helps really emphasize that family aspect because, you know, the mainline plot is about his family leaving him behind. And he had kind of wanted that to happen because they were being mean to him on the day uh, before they left. And if it was just that... I think it would be a little thin. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I don't yeah. think it would have a lot of emotional impact. But because they they get both of those storylines, the old man storyline and Kevin McAllister's storyline, both are kind of these like interesting ways of talking about ways that families break down. It becomes way more of a dramatic thing for you in the end. I mean, one of the last shots of this movie is... Kevin looking out the window and seeing that the old man has called his son. Yes, yes. And it's a wonderful scene. It's beautiful, yeah. Um, and I think like that, it's it's not obvious how you get stuff like that out of this movie, which is why I think the word creative is such a good way to describe it. Yes. Yeah, and, there, and there's throughout, there's so many fun ideas. Like I was just thinking of the polka playing guys, <laughs> like that she's stuck on this truck yeah. with, like things that don't really matter to the meat of the story but are fun kind of flavoring right like things that make the scenes funny to watch or entertaining to watch the this movie definitely over delivers on side characters as well there's at least three scenes where again someone just like they were they were thinking about why are you still watching this movie right again which is just not done that often anymore um so the first one is before kevin McAllister is left uh, and and I'll talk about this a little bit later when we talk about how clean the script is in terms of making sure things seem plausible that right. are obviously not plausible right. or whatever. Right. Which it does a very it good job. It does a lot of good, a lot of work to make it does. most everything feel plausible. It does. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like that that is one of the reasons this movie succeeded is because it feels so slick that way. Yes. It just kind of everything flows. But there's a kid at the beginning who they needed to have in there to. Uh, because they cared, to have there be a reason why the head count is wrong for Kevin. And it could have just been some random kid from the block who's not interesting, but instead they gave him this personality of he's just this kid who asks questions all the time (laughs) and doesn't listen to the answers. So he's just there talking to the adults from the shuttle uh, company that takes people to the airport, right? And just asking all these questions is about like one after the other, after the other, after the other, without listening for the answers. It's hilarious. It's really funny. They didn't have to do that. The same is true of the guy they call the police department. And there's this family crisis counselor. (laughs) He's like eating a donut and it's like getting crusted onto the the, the receiver. The the, the part where the donut like gets stuck on the phone is just like. And it falls off. It's one of those things that obviously just kind of happened during that 
take or whatever. And it was like, yes, <laughs> right? And that guy is d- delivering this great performance where he's just like reading completely dispassionately these horrific things yeah, about like, yeah. you know, was the child like injured in a family dispute? There's also the scene with the Santa Claus guy, the guy who plays Santa Claus in his yep. like crappy car. Um, there's the, even the scene where he goes to the store to buy the toothbrush. Yeah. Is this uh, approved by the American Yeah, Johnson? and then she's like, I gotta ask the other guy, and then, um, or the scene where he's checking out at the grocery store, and yeah. that, and the, the woman and him are kind of having this conversation. Like, all of those scenes are so memorable and fun and, uh, and well-written. Like, the dialogue is, in this movie is so clever. I guess that's the, that's John Hughes, right? I mean... I, I mean, I assume, I don't know, but... I, I, I mean, I feel like... I haven't seen a ton of his movies, but he, he does seem to... They're in that short sort of genre of, like, lots of talking and, and kind of funny, I guess. Well, and... Darkly uh, funny. And the casting, too, I think is part of it, yeah. right? It's like, you know, that John Candy character, obviously, he's the perfect guy to kind of play that sort of, like, yeah. awkward person who's being too friendly. Like, that's his thing. He does it perfectly. And so that helps that whole thing come across yeah. uh, as engaging instead of annoying or whatever. And right. So, you know, they did a good job of picking people for those roles who would work. Same with the little kid, same with the guy at the the police department. Other people playing those roles probably wouldn't have been able to quite do it, but those people looked the part, they delivered the lines just right, and yeah. that's yeah. part of the, that, pulling yeah. that off, right? So uh, I guess I'd talk about strong points in the screenplay. Again, something you would never see today is the motivation for why Kevin McAllister gets left home alone. Mm-hmm. It, you know, this is this is um, now a franchise owned by Disney because they bought Fox. I don't, I don't know. know. I don't, I don't remember know. the original production company, but you know, it all flows to Disney. Everything will be owned by Disney eventually. In the Disney version of this movie, there's just some narration, which is like at the beginning of the movie, you see Macaulay Culkin, you know, running away from the two thieves, and it freeze frames and it goes this is me i ended up having to defend my home because i was left you know, that's the disney <laughs> version of this movie every, they they are literally incapable of of making a movie now that doesn't start that way like yeah. every movie i've seen by them starts basically with a few minor exceptions that way mm-hmm. right and this movie does the old 80s model for starting a movie you see it in back to the future um, you see it in, uh, you know, movies like Terminator. You see it in all the movies of that period where they they actually take 10 to 20 minutes to put you into the world and what's happening prior to the initial, like, main sequence that would start. The inciting right? incident. There's a part before that. Yeah. And that, do- you know, that's not a thing anymore, right? Right. Um, and so in this movie, it's really great because they create so much stuff in this initial first 10 minutes that really, like, puts you into the scene and gets you understand – it puts you into the world, I should say, and gets you understanding everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. So we have so much information that first part. We're introduced to uh, the Joe Pesci character yep. and how he's basically, like, falsely going around posing as a police officer so he can find out who's going out of town. Mm-hmm. He's in the, the first scene, right? We see how chaotic the family is so that we can really believe that they might, you know, not know what, exactly what's going on. Because yes. there's so much hecticness to their life and how many people there are. Yeah. 
Um, we get this uh, sort of interactions with Kevin and his family members to see how much he's basically like, uh, you know, put put on by them. You know, they're all mean to him. They say mean things and to well, him. Also, though, he is annoying. Like Kevin mm-hmm. is also a brat at the beginning of this movie. Yep. Like they are they are being unnecessarily mean to him but he is also being a little brat so. and kind of useless he can't pack yeah. his own suitcase you know blah he's blah blah whiny he's yeah so we get all of this information from them we find out about the guy with the shovel yep right the old man with the shovel we're he's introduced, introduced. To so many things we're introduced to the tarantula we're introduced to the tarantula and the relationship with the sort of the older brother who's kind yep. of more of a bully um not really but you know kind of in, played in, that way in the in the way that an older brother would be exactly. not not in like a I'm going to beat you up kind of way, but in a, I'm going to tease you kind of way. We see what happened to the plane tickets, like yep. that there's, and what then we get this scene where he's, why is he upstairs? Why is he not where he normally would be sleeping? Right. He gets sent to the attic or whatever, right? Um, and he was going to be paired with the kid who wets the bed, yeah. but then he complains about it, and so his mom's like, we'll put him somewhere else. Yes. So Kevin is up there all alone. Kevin's up there all alone. And we also then get this nice thing where he's wishing that his family wasn't there. He's, he and his mother have this interaction where he's like, I hate this family. I don't want to, you know, them around anymore. And we also see him, like, uh, get this weird, like, w- this weird wind blows that knocks a little branch. Pa- yeah, with the power goes out. So the power goes out. So that's why they get up so stressed in the morning, right? Yep. And we get the the kid from the neighborhood who gets miscounted, Right. There's so much work to make you believe, and, the, pho- and this. the phones are the phones are knocked out as well. The phones are knocked out, and there's a uh, the when they get to the airport, which is kind of the trailing end of the scene. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, how do they not notice that he's not sitting with them or whatever? Right. It's like the, they explicitly don't really make the plane, so they're just told to sit anywhere in coach, and the, and the parents are in first class. Exactly. So it's like. They did so much work to make this plausible, so much more than you ever get. And it's just delightful to see. Yeah, there's even, you know, toward the end of the movie, I had the thought, like, how is it possible that Kevin's parents won't know that all of this happened? Like, isn't there going to be like a police report and whatever? And then, no, he lures the guys to the house across the street, which is where the cops catch them. And then he cleans up everything. So there's no evidence that anything other than the tooth. The gold tooth. Yes. So there's no evidence for the parents that anything went wrong it would have been so easy to just have him call the cops to his house yes but then his parents would know because there would be like a police report and right like like even stuff like that is so clever because it had to be a secret right it had to be a thing that nobody ever that his parents don't find out about so i guess the thing that i don't love about the screenplay in this movie is that i feel like it does such a good job explaining everything else it like does a great job with the with the old man in the shovel who kind of saves the day at the end. Mm-hmm. And you can even believe why he would have seen that because he's always out on the street shoveling salt and sand around. Mm-hmm. So it's very plausible that he would have seen them run across the street. Yep. Uh, so it's not, you know, this out of nowhere thing that happens. And, of course, the stuff with his family is great and the stuff of why they might be in the church at the same time to have a conversation makes perfect sense. Why he would come over and say Merry Christmas to the mm-hmm. kid. And all that stuff, all of that makes perfect sense. Uh, And like you said, what happens with cops makes sense. It all is kind of reasonable. But the thing that I actually didn't love about the screenplay 
is I felt like for all of that work that it does for all of the procedural stuff and all the side characters and the family and Mm -hmm. all that stuff, everyone is getting all of this screenplay work. Oddly enough, Kevin McAllister doesn't get it, Hmm. doesn't get all that much screenplay stuff. And the reason that I say that is because if you look at all the things that this kid does, he basically goes, you know, the word would be zero to hero in like a a, a snap of the finger. Yeah, right. And not just two days, like a half a day, because, you know, we see basically him useless Kevin. And then almost immediately we see Kevin, who somehow is able to rig up an entire house full of MacGyvered, like fake people to like make it appear that there's a party. Right. Mm -hmm. And I feel like. Yeah, in the Disney version of this movie, that doesn't feel out of place because nothing is motivated. It's just, hey, these are some scenes that happened. You'll you'll buy it. We don't care, mm-hmm. right? But in this movie where everything was so meticulously motivated, I didn't love a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see more explanation or background about why was Kevin a kind of kid who would do this? Did, what, you know, could we have seen him playing with these sorts of toys before so we believed he was really into model trains, so like that's why he set this thing up with the model trains? Or maybe he's someone who's always playing with little gadgets, so that's why he would be someone... Yeah, I mean, of, they do mention at the, very in the... In the opening scene, they mention that he's got his little... Uh, like, I don't know if it was Matchbox cars or something on the floor and that people are going to, like, slip on them. I mean, and, but, I mean, yeah, it's like... No. They don't really... No, it's... I think the weakest part of this movie is anything to do with the... Not not so much the, the robbers themselves, but the the sort of attempt to thwart them. It's It's an entertaining scene to watch. But I do think you're right that it it's pushed so much farther than everything else in the movie, and it and as you say, it doesn't necessarily do the work to make it feel plausible like it does with so many other things. On multiple fronts, I would yeah. I would add. So, again, you get this sort of Looney Tunes series of things. Mm-hmm. Kevin McAllister has never watched a cartoon in the entire movie. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. You're like, shouldn't this have been a kid who was obsessed with Wiley e. Coyote or something? You know, like. Why is he all of a sudden his go-to idea for how to defend his home is these cartoon sort of things? That's not hard to motivate. You know, show us a few scenes of him being really into that stuff or trying to build something like that or, I mean, you or could, anything You could have earlier. even had in the first scene, you know, he's supposed to be annoying. Why not show him like... You know, pranking his brother, setting up some sort of booby trap at his brother's room. Just like one thing that kind of clues us into like this character does this sort of thing. Exactly. And the other problem I have with it is that it's also unmotivated in terms of literally the motivation for Kevin McAllister. Mm -hmm. So prior to that sequence, he says something like, I'm going to defend my home or whatever. Mm -hmm. Completely unmotivated. There's no explanation for why he suddenly feels motivated to defend his home. And, you know, it's loosely connected to the prior scene where he's talking about fear with the old man. And I think the idea is that that scene is supposed to motivate him to do this for to defend it his house. It doesn't connect. It doesn't connect. It doesn't feel like it. Yeah. And one of the reasons it doesn't feel like it, because it could have. One of the reasons it doesn't feel like it to me is because we've never been given any emotional, like, uh, weight 
earlier to any reason why Kevin McCaster is feeling he can't defend his home. What I wanted to see there in order for this to feel as natural as the rest of the film did is this this feeling like like if prior to that we had seen like Kevin being like, all right, if they're coming back tonight, like it's too dangerous for me to be here. So I'm just going to go and I'm going to hide in my treehouse until it's over. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So that we expect Kevin to just let the thieves st- steal the stuff from the house, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's it doesn't matter. I, I would I would have like double or triple down on that if I were working on this part. I would probably also have had like, okay, so the mom, right? Um so so I would have tied in okay, this is getting really off in the screenplay weeds, but oh, I'm just no. trying to okay. I'm just trying to explain like how I see these things working when you look at the plot structure, right? So there's a scene in this movie that's completely unnecessary. And I don't really think is very valuable to have in the scene, but it could have been. And I'll tie it into this and explain how that would have worked. So the scene in this movie where the mom has this interaction with an old lady where she's trying to get tickets from the old lady Mm -hmm. because there's no room on the flight. She's basically trying to bribe another passenger to give up their seat because there's no seats left on any of the planes because it's Christmas. Again, very plausible. Mm -hmm. So good job, screenplay. Problem is, who cares about this? It really doesn't matter that much because we've never seen any evidence that the mom doesn't care about Kevin, right? We have plenty of evidence of that. So the fact that we keep seeing her doing these things, it's like it's fine. It doesn't hurt the movie, but doesn't really reinforce anything because I already believed that. She's always been the one the entire time who's most concerned about Kevin being at home. So yet another scene of her doing stuff to get home is just not that interesting. We've never heard her talk about any of this jewelry. So as far as we know, she doesn't care about it anyway. I probably would have switched that around. I probably would have done something. So in that opening, when we have all of this chaos going on, there's something where the mother gets very mad at Kevin for doing something with her jewelry, which she is like the most important thing to her. She, like, she freaking loves her jewelry. And she gets super mad at Kevin for like taking one of the things out and like yells at him or something. I probably would have had that in there. So that this scene where she gives away the jewelry would have been more interesting because I'm like, oh, like she's having a change of heart about what's important. She's like feeling bad about yelling at Kevin for the jewelry. It's just jewelry. And she's willing to give it up for her son. That's a little more interesting to me. A little more. Kevin, meanwhile, sees the jewelry because he's up in his parents' bedroom. That's where he's sleeping in that big bed. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think her jewelry, he would know that the thieves are going to steal that. And part of his wanting to, he wants his mother back. That's a big thing that's happening in this part of the movie. He's sad that she's gone. There should have been stuff like he sees the jewelry and is thinking about his mom, like looks at the picture and is like, I'm going to try to do something to like be better. Like I'm going to, I'm going to try and defend this house because my family's stuff is in it. And maybe the same is true for maybe the brother. He's like, he puts the stuff he took from his brother's lunchbox back into the lunchbox, closes it and is like, puts it back where it belonged. And he's like, I'm going to defend this house because my family's stuff is here and I want them to come back. And I'm just trying to do things. Right. 
Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I know what you're saying. I, I feel like I'm not sure that I'd like the emphasis on material things. You can't in a movie that's about stealing stuff. If if we ha- if we want to believe that he's defending this house for his but family, it's, it's, it has to be about it's that. It's more than that because home invasions are about more than just it, – they're about the invasion, right? Of uh, It's more than just about what they took, right? So I think Not in this case because no one's there. I don't know. I don't know if I. I mean, I get. I get that the problem that you're talking about, um, and I kind of agree. I think it has more to. Yeah, it's like, why does Kevin choose to defend the home in this way? Why not just call the police? Right? Like, why does he feel like he has to take it up on himself? Honestly, I think anybody would want to defend their home in the place they live. I think it's like. The but thing it has that, to be the, for the his that, family. But the thing that right? I think needs more that would I, we talked about before is like, give me some more information about why, like that the fact that Kevin maybe likes to do this kind of thing, has a history of doing these sort of booby traps and these sort of pranks, and he just sees this as as this is this is how he he decides in his kid brain. Like he doesn't think oh, I'm going to call the police, right? He thinks oh, this is how I will defend my family or my my home, and I feel like. That, for me, is probably enough. I don't really need there to be a strong motivation for why he would want to defend his house because I think anybody, anybody would want to defend their house. That's pretty normal. Their home is their home, right? But, but it has to be connected to the idea that he wants his family back. That's the problem because that is the crux of but, I mean, what's I think, happening I, in the I movie. Think we, we do have bits and pieces of that. Like he, he looks at their photos and that kind of like, he, you know, he, he's wishing them back. But it's unclear how those two things are connected is my point. You have to connect the idea that he wants to defend his home with the fact that he's doing it for his family in order for this to be a stronger part of the movie. But it, otherwise I, they're unrelated. Yes and no, because I think part of Kevin's arc is not about his family. It's about his his own growth. Uh, he's no, you know, at the start of the movie, he is a a whiny little brat who can't do anything for himself. This part of the story, I think, is less about his family and more about him becoming more mature and more independent and a, a, sort of a stronger person like i to me the defending his house is not about his family it's about it's sort of the 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 representation of the change that has happened from from this few days of being on his own i mean i guess but it's like we've already had tons of content of that like he's already gone shopping and he does his own laundry now and stuff so i'm not sure i'm not sure that makes a particularly compelling climax unless you wanted to change those sequences to make them not be that way right i feel like being left alone already is the thing that makes him into somebody who is going to be like more independent and capable what we don't have is a particularly interesting way that this ties back to family right you could equivalently say well as he becomes more independent he just leads his family less so why does he even wish that they're back right it's it's an ambiguous story at that point and it's not really supposed to be a particularly subtle story. So to me, like, I well, wanted to see more I I think there. I guess I don't don't really agree because I think the thing that was giving him, the thing that was creating the tension between him and his family was this part of his personality, right? The thing that that was making everyone kind of not like him was the fact that he was such a brat and he was so dependent and whiny and annoying. And... He's kind of realized that a little bit about himself. And to me, it's like the the ending is just 
is him taking on some responsibility. And the responsibility is, while my family is not here, I'm going to protect our house because the responsibility falls to me now. Rather than being like, oh, I just, you know, everyone has to take that. care of me. You've got to show that. This is what I'm saying is you need something to demonstrate that that is what Kevin McAllister is thinking. Because we don't really get that motivation. This scene, as it begins, doesn't, it comes out of nowhere. Why does he feel this, Right. Well, that's why I say I think the only thing that probably the main thing you would have needed to add was at the beginning, make it clear that he does this sort of thing, because then I think it becomes clear why he would do this. That's how he's able to do it. But the question is, why is it an important decision for this character to decide to do it rather than Duragur? If you wanted there to be emotional weight to his decision to defend his home, there has to be a possibility that he would not defend his home. And that is not contained in this story is my well, point. Well, yeah, I mean, we do see him, like, early on, he hides under the bed the first time the bur- the burglars come. The cop comes and he's hiding under the covers. Correct. So we know, like, we obviously see that there has been a change in his in his character, but yeah, it's like... But this movie wants, I mean, even in the screenplay, he says, like, I have to, like, he makes a decision to defend his home, but there was never any, he's been defending his home the entire time, so there was never any real... Well, thought I think, in my head that he yeah. might not. And I mean, I think you're right. It's like after the scene where he talks about fear with the old man in the church, I think that's that's the turn. That's the moment where he decides he's going to defend it is when he decides to not be afraid anymore. But yeah, it's like maybe you could say there's too many things happening with the character. I don't know if I totally I think, agree. I don't think there are too many things. I just think like the obvious thing that this movie, I'm saying what's in the movie already, it just doesn't quite do it. It's fairly clear to me that it's supposed to be that he decides to defend the house for his family because he just had a, a, a conversation with the old man about how fear is preventing him from doing something that will bring his family back to him. It seems obvious that the movie wanted to say that this is some, a step that Kevin has to take to bring his family back to him, even though that's fictional in Kevin's mind, because we know that the family is trying to get back to him anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. In Kevin's mind, they've disappeared. So to him, it seems obvious that the movie, at least to me, I guess it doesn't to you, but it seems to me that the movie is clearly telegraphing to us that this is a step Kevin must take to bring his family back to him. I I don't feel I don't I definitely don't get that. I don't think really that he's that he's doing this to bring his family back. It seems so clear to me because that's literally the conversation they have. They literally have exactly that conversation with the old man. And then immediately the, the next thing Kevin does is say, I have to defend my home. Yeah. From, from the conversation right? with the old man, I get that he's deciding not to be afraid anymore. For his family. That's, that's what that conversation is about, right? The old man is prevented from reunifying with his family because of fear. The implication, at least to me, very clearly, is Kevin McAllister believes he is also being prevented from being reunified with his family because of fear. And he needs to overcome his fear to do that. Because it's it's like literally exactly that in the screenplay, as far as I can tell, right? So to me, I don't actually think that's a problem. You don't think that's actually happening. So for you, you would not be thinking this, I guess. But to me, I'm thinking this. So I just need some evidence that that's actually true, that, f- that Kevin McAllister was too afraid to defend his home 
he so beforehand, like I said, he says, like, I'm just going to hide out in the treehouse or whatever until they leave. Mm-hmm. And then he decides, no, because my family, this is my family's home and it's all their stuff and it's where they live. And I'm going to defend it because I want them to come back and I want to show that it's worth coming back because, you know, I'm I'm, I'm a, better now. I'm, I'm a not, better person. Yeah. And I and I'm worth living with in this home. Right. Yeah. And I do think that. They could have done that. I, yeah, I, mean, I think I they really, could have done that. I don't think we're far from – I don't think we're really far from that. That's why I'm saying. I don't yeah. think – I think you only need a few little changes uh, to some earlier stuff to connect that up. Yeah. And, of course, then there's the how part of it, which is why I'm saying, like, can you watch more cartoons? Can we Can we get some inclination that his, his go-to in his head is going to be I hook up a blowtorch yeah, to a thing or whatever, there's right? There's really no lead up at all to the booby traps comes kind of scene. Like, it literally comes out of nowhere. Which, I don't know, it's like, it's kind of fine, I guess. I don't know. Because it, it, it would have been, been so easy to just introduce yeah. once or twice before. I mean, I'm literally talking about him just watching cartoons, right? Yeah, and, or, I, you know, or, you know, in that first scene, you set up one booby trap for the older brother or something. Like, just something really simple. And like this, the That whole section could have played out basically the same with one little... Well, I think it gets stronger, too. Uh, the movie part gets stronger where, you know, he's got this movie, which is a fun part of this uh, in this film. He's yeah, got this yeah. movie. Was it called, like, Filthy Animals or something? I don't remember what it's called. I don't know what it's called. called. They actually but filmed it for the movie. It is yeah. not a pre-existing movie. Keep the change of Filthy <laughs> yeah. Animal, right? Um, you know, uh, it, it could have been – we could have had a scene where um, at the beginning – He's trying to watch. He wants to watch some movie, and his mom's like, "That's too old for you. You know, you got to well, put ha- on cartoons that, or whatever." Well, right? that it sort of happens because I'm assuming this is the is this the movie that the they they were trying to watch, and the uncle told him he couldn't watch. Well, and so put on cartoons at that point, and he's like, "All right." So like almost like he doesn't want to watch the cartoons, but then we see the you know we see him like watching it begrudgingly, and it's got stuff on it because then it's kind of fun. It's like, oh, the stuff that I didn't want to watch like actually now kind of comes back as like a bonus i kind of like that too right there's just i don't know yeah there seems like there's stuff that they could have done that would have helped just to emphasize all of this stuff as it stands like i said still massively over delivers on the screenplay front for a movie like this mm-hmm. but it's like it was inching it was almost inching towards greatness in a weird way, mm-hmm. uh, which is scary, you know, but it one, was. One thing that I actually think helps the movie a lot is the John Williams score. Oh, yeah. It's great. I mean, it's John Williams. Of course it's great. Um, no, absolutely. It's John Williams sort of like during his, uh, you know, that 20-year period where he was just making like the best, maybe more like a 30-year period, um, just some of the best film scores. But this one is fantastic. It's so good. And it really elevates the movie in a lot of sections because i mean this is one of the things that film music does right it really clues you in on like how to feel Mm -hmm. um and it it works really well in this movie when it's you know it's it tonally is exactly what it needs to be in any given scene and it really emphasizes emphasizes what the scene is about it's fantastic yeah i mean i think and the other thing is just so that that the, the last 20 minutes like the slapstick stuff uh i i think is really pretty well done it's so different than the rest of the movie it's so much more extreme but it, it it's so slapstick and ridiculous and the expressions they make their faces are hilarious i um, think joe pesci and the i forget that other guy's I can't name because he's not as famous of an, mm-hmm. like he's not in a lot of other yeah. stuff that you yeah 
he he plays a number of bit parts, but he's never like Joe Pesci is Joe like Pesci a is, big name, yeah, right? Yeah. They both are fantastic in pulling off these weird like a lot of those scenes are not really very interesting, yeah. but they make them interesting yes. because their banter and the dynamic between the two characters, it's like what they refer to in romantic comedies as chemistry or something like that. It's happening here between non-romantic <laughs> characters. Yeah, yeah. They're able to get that back and forth pretty much perfect, yeah. and, and it really works. And And thinking of it like a cartoon, it really feels that way. Down to the way they look, one of them is short and round, the other is tall and thin. Yep. Um, the expressions on their faces become so extreme. Like, there's there's literally shots where I, in my head, was like, like I couldn't have drawn it better. Do you know what right, I mean? Right. Like, they're so extreme and hilarious. And the, the, the physicality, too, I'm sure a lot of that is stunt, you know, stunt work and stuff, but... And directing. And directing. Yeah, the direction is great, uh... Because, I mean, they got the cartoon timing, right? Like, yep. they looked at each thing. It's like, oh, this is the one where they swing into a wall and become pancaked. Yep, this yep. is the one where the blowtorch just... And they just hold like it would in a cartoon yes, for too yes. long because it's not actually working physically the way it should. Yeah. But they, they did all those things so that it just feels exactly like a Saturday morning, which is why it's even weirder that this kid has never really shown watching Saturday morning cartoons for a long time or something. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. strange. No, but it's... In terms of something... Something shot in live action that mm-hmm. looks like a cartoon, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anything that achieves it quite as well as this 20-minute scene in Home Alone. Uh, it really just has so much of that cartoon feel. And I mean that in like a really good way. Yes. Um, it's, it's so strange because the rest of the movie doesn't have anything like that. The rest of the movie is really grounded and realistic. And then, then you have this like kind of ludicrously ridiculous scene but it's like it works and i don't know why but it does it's like it's strange i mean i think it works again because it's directed very well and they had two great actors you know like for for that particular role and so you you know honestly the thing that's the least interesting about that whole sequence is kevin McAllister. like he's kind of boring in it but that's fine because it's almost entirely about the two criminals and you know they completely pull it off because it really is just about them going through a series of very painful yes. mishaps in a slapstick yeah. Three Stooges kind of way. Yeah. And they managed to do it. Uh, I, I think the touch point for that a lot of times would have been something like the Three Stooges. Sure. But instead of doing that, they did like literal cartoon shots. Yeah. And I feel like that was kind of very novel feeling at the time. And it holds up yeah. very well till today. It's uh, very, very memorable. I mean, I think this movie... I don't think was particularly well reviewed at the time, but it is. I mean, it, it is. It, it's one of those movies that still has a ton of like cultural significance, and I see why. There's so much about it that's that sticks in your head. And I think this is another case of also like, you know, how you kind of you, you've complained a little bit. I mean, not not much, but a little bit in prior episode in Klaus. In fact, I think about how like animation doesn't get much credit uh, in terms of, like, you know, like an animated feature doesn't win, like, Best Picture or whatever. Oh, sure, yeah. I think this is actually a movie that's kind of a little bit in that category. Mm -hmm. I would suspect that if you looked at the kinds of things that they had nominated for Best Screenplay in the year that Home Alone was out, there's probably a movie on that list with a significantly worse screenplay. (laughs) 
I mean, there probably is. Probably. And it's because I think, like, screenplays are not valued as highly as they should be in a lot of cases. And maybe what I'm saying is not entirely true because at that time screenplays were stronger on average, I think, certainly than today. But I do think that you're, what you're say saying, this, this screenplay is undervalued. This screenplay is undervalued. And, and if you teleported this screenplay to today, mm-hmm. it's probably stronger than all of the movies that are nominated for best screenplay except for maybe one or two like nowadays screenplays are garbage most of the time and this is remarkable because it's like it's a movie that nobody would expect a great screenplay for nobody would have demanded a great screenplay for a movie like this because they're like what is the selling point of this movie it's that we have these cartoon sequences at the end and it's going to be so funny and Kevin and uh, Macaulay Culkin's going to do this cute thing where he like you know pretends to be an adult Right. Mm-hmm. That's the selling part for this movie. No one's thinking like, oh, this clever, all these clever things we're going to do in the screenplay and we're going to ha- try to have all these emotional moments in it and all this stuff. No one's thinking that mm-hmm. um, when, you know, you're producing a, a movie like this, I don't think. But somebody did like John Hughes, I assume, is the person who did this. And um, it, it's, it's really fantastic. And I think it's I think it's underrated writing. Yeah, I think I would agree. Um, there's a lot about it that that's good. It's way better written and way better directed than Vertigo, the number two movie on the BFI, (laughs) which had a horrible screenplay and was not directed very well. You know, you can go you could pick movies off of a BFI top 100 list that I would objectively go to toe to toe with versus Home Alone, which is not even one of my favorite movies or anything. It's not even in my top 10. But I'm just saying, like. This is a better technical job on all fronts than some of these movies that people claim are somehow evincing mastery and definitely aren't. And I will absolutely go a hundred rounds with anyone. Look, I mean, lists are lists or whatever. I mean, it's all. But I'm just pointing. I'm just talking about the undervalued part. I'm just saying, yeah. Like at the end of the day, film is subjective, and what people are looking for is is different you know depending on every every individual person right is looking for something different. i'm just trying to give an example of just how underrated i think this is is that people people when a movie doesn't have that a, a sort of natural appeal to it mm-hmm. i think it gets this artificial bump because nobody today would want to watch vertigo if you release vertigo in the theaters the only people who are going are old film nobody boss. watched it at the time it was nobody like watched a flop. The time. It, it makes it like this sort of thing that it's like hip to think is a great movie, right? Yeah, I mean, I, Home there, Alone is not hip because it was super popular. I think there, there's right? obviously among among film critics and film like academics, there is yeah. obviously a, a bias towards a bias towards a less accessible film, right? Like, exactly, because it feels like you're you're working hard. Exactly, and I think that's okay. Sometimes, sometimes you do want to work hard, but at the end of the day, appeal. Is good. Like it, just because something is a is more widely appealing doesn't mean it's somehow worse. In fact, in a lot of ways, that means it's better. And um, durable appeal is actually hard to achieve. Yes, I agree that sometimes you can put out a um, something that's just a a kind of a product that's like a we know we. Can, I mean, well, Which, Mar- to Marvel be honest, movies, I would say to right? be honest, um, that's most of what we get today. And so I understand that there'd be a lot of cynicism about mass appeal kind right, of movies, but because they're non durable. Yeah. Home Alone is an example of a durable appeal, a durable mass appeal. It's just, it is an engaging movie to watch always. And I think that's a lot harder to achieve than people 
uh, think. It's not about playing to the cheap seats and it's not about lowest common denominator because that durable appeal is very hard. When you have things that are a product, they don't have durable appeal because the next product is just equivalent. Right. There's I don't need to go watch Avengers Endgame because Avengers Affinity War was the same and Avengers this and that. I can watch any of them and get the same experience. So they're non-durable. Like I don't go like, oh, I really want to go watch this specific Marvel movie again. Well, they're intentionally designed to not be in some ways. They're designed to just get you to watch the next one. They're not designed to be a standalone sort of classic Exactly. Memorable movie. That's not the point. And so I think it's it conflates two things when you talk about Home Alone in that same way if you're to consider it just a product. It's not. Like there was a lot of actual technical excellence and a lot of like heart in this movie. And Absolutely. it feels that way. Absolutely. In a way that I'm sure if we watched the four sequels to Home Alone, none of them would have. Yeah. Um, don't know that for sure because I didn't watch them, but I'm just going to go sa- ahead and I guess. I think we're safe to assume. Yeah, uh, because those were probably products just designed to be another Home Alone. And so I do think this is the kind of movie that deserves special merit for not being the product it could have been and for actually being a heartfelt movie that took a lot of skill to make so watchable even 20 years after the fact, uh, you know, watching this movie sorry 30 years after the fact it was 1990 1990. 30 years after the fact this movie feels fresh i watch it totally engaged in the movie yep i can't think of another movie that's kind of like this sort of thing um yeah i mean i've seen this movie over the years so many times Mm -hmm. and i still enjoy watching it every time so there's 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 some magic in this movie it deserves some credit and just briefly tying it up since this is christmas month in fact this is the last movie of our christmas month I think it's a great Christmas movie. Uh-huh. I watch it. I don't know if I watch it every year, but I watch it fairly often at Christmas time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of it's the obviously the John Williams score. It's got a Christmassy score. It's a very it feels Christmassy, and it's very emotional and, and sweet in the way that you want sometimes a Christmas movie to be. This movie has it, and uh, it's a it's just it's it's a really fun movie that you can easily come back to year after year and never get tired of. Yep. Yep. So, yeah. Is that it? I think that's it. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us for Christmas month. This was definitely a, a different month for us. We went a little lighter, so it was kind of this fun to light, get. light and fluffy month. A little fluffy. Um, so, yeah, thanks for joining us. Next week, we're going to do a Twitch live stream, a watch party. The last live stream was fun. was War Games, which that I really fun. enjoyed. It was yeah. fun, yeah. Um, War Games, not quite like Home Alone in that it it doesn't quite get there uh home alone does you know minor quibbles aside it it does war games is like you wish they'd tried a little harder it could have gotten to a home alone kind of a place but it it doesn't really Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. it's just sort of like okay but it's still a pretty fun movie it was fun and i had fun watching it again because i haven't seen it in decades yeah yeah so, no it was really fun um, so we'll see i don't know what we're watching this we don't time know but what it was we're fun. watching we'll figure we'll it see out you guys there hopefully yeah so, so join us if you're around um i know it's the holiday time and uh so we don't know yeah. where everyone will be but if yeah. you're around join us so until then we'll uh we'll see you later all right take care everybody bye <laughs>